You are listening to the Hill City Church Podcast. Our mission is to become and make disciples who walk with God, connect with people, and impact the world. Well, Happy New Year, everyone. Anyone do New Year's resolutions this year? Or has everyone given up? Okay, a few people. A few people. We're two days in. How are you doing with those? I mean, anything that you did yesterday, as long as you do it today, you can say, I've flossed my teeth every day this year. I've gone for a jog every day this year, right? I mean, think about those things. New Year's resolutions, there's something about that that gives us hope. We can change. You can have a clean slate. You can have a line in the sand. And yet there's also something a little hopeless about that, isn't there? Just the the vast amount of us who make those resolutions every single year and inevitably we fail. The stats show about 80% of people who make New Year's resolutions by mid-February, they're done. They've thrown in the towel and maybe for you, you said, I'm gonna gonna spend less time watching TV, but that new Star Wars series just came out on (laughs) Disney Plus. I'm gonna spend less time on my phone, but you know, I've got I've to you know, do my online shopping or you know, I've got to check in on everyone's holiday plans. Uh, maybe you said, I've, I've got to start this new diet because I ate too much over the holidays. And then you still have some of that holiday sweets left over, right? They're like, I'll, I'll start the diet after I finish this tray of cookies. Uh, maybe you said, I, I want to start a, an exercise plan. You know, whether it's, you know, a workout plan on the TV or you've got a gym membership or something like that. And then you're just so tired, right? I mean, the, the excuses go on and on and on. Or maybe, maybe this one, I'm gonna stop getting so angry at my kids. I'm gonna stop cussing uh, in front of them. And then you're on the way to church this morning. <laughs> and it's like, what the bleep is going on back there, right? And, and it just slips out. And, and we, we have this, this sense about us that we, we love the idea that it's a new year. The possibilities are endless. We can change. And yet, when so many of us have tried and failed, we wonder if change is really possible. Strava, the exercise app Strava, maybe you've heard of it, they calculated based on 31.5 million global activities that people who start exercising, it's the second Friday in January that most of those people quit, which this year, It's January 14th, and they've actually named it Quitter's Day. (laughs) That's, that's, so so if you started, especially if you started a workout program, if you can make it past January 14th, you'll be doing better than most people. And it begs us to really ask this question. This is really the question I want to wrestle with. Today and all throughout this series, why can't I change? Why can't I change? I mean, if those line in the sand decision-making moments were enough, then we wouldn't have to keep making New Year's resolutions every year. If our own resolve was enough, I mean, think about that word. I'm just going to resolve to not eat junk food anymore. If that was enough, we wouldn't have to do it every single year. If grit your teeth, clench your fist, willpower alone was enough, then all of us would be perfect, wouldn't we? Why can't I change. I think about what Paul wrote in Romans 7:15, where he said, I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. 
Now, there's a little speculation as if you know, Paul is talking about himself or you know, as if he's talking before he was in Christ, right? There's a little bit of scholarly debate. And yet we can resonate with that, can't we? Have you ever been in that place where you did the very thing you promised yourself that you would never do again? And we're left with this question, why can't I change? The reality is there are more serious matters in our lives than diet and exercise that we need to change. There's addictions to pornography. There's addictions to drugs and alcohol. There's fits of anger. There's destructive thought patterns. There's things that we say that cut down the people in our families, the people we love the most. There's toxic relationships. And especially for you, if you're here and you're someone who's a follower of Jesus already, what you might be tempted to do is not just ask the question, why can't I change? You might be tempted to shift the blame to God and say, why hasn't God changed me yet? I mean, today we're celebrating baptisms and maybe you've even been baptized. And while when you put your faith in Jesus, you're fully forgiven, you're fully covered in God's grace, you might've come up from the baptismal waters And then that very same afternoon or the very next day, you're still struggling with that same sin or temptation. And it's easy for us to maybe even shift that blame to God and say, God, why didn't you just make me perfect? Why haven't you already changed me? And James, the brother of Jesus, if you have a Bible, you can open to James chapter one. It's right near the end of the New Testament. It's gonna be our teaching text for today. James, the brother of Jesus, addresses this exact tension that we're talking about. James chapter one, verse 13. Let no one say when he or she is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts how many people? No one. Is it God's fault? No. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. See, blame shifting is the oldest trick in the book, literally. I mean, think back to Genesis chapter three, Adam and Eve, the the fruit, maybe you're familiar with the story, right? There's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and God gave them one rule, don't eat from that tree, the fruit of that tree, and of course, they ate from that fruit. It's how evil entered into mankind, And, and blame shifting is immediately what they fell into when they were found out. First, they hid. Right? They, they knew that they were ashamed and they hid. They tried to hide from God. That didn't work so well. And then God asks Adam, why did you do it? And Adam blames his wife, the woman, that, that woman. But he doesn't just blame his wife. He also blames God, the woman that you gave me. You should have made a better woman for me, right? So he blames God. He blames his wife. God looks at Eve. Why did you do it? Why did you take a bite of the fruit? And the woman says, the devil made me do it. And blame shifting is literally the oldest trick in the book. Now, James, here in James chapter one, is not saying that there aren't other forces at play that make it difficult for us, that tempt us. He's not saying that the devil doesn't play a role. He's not saying that peer pressure or the broken world that we live in, he's not saying those things don't play a role. What he's saying, though, is all of us have a personal responsibility when we sin, when we rebel against God. He says, look in the mirror, essentially. If you you wanna know why can't I change, what we have to do is we have to stop shifting the blame 
and saying, well, it's so difficult to stop eating junk food because the donut shop is right on my way home, right? We have to stop shifting the blame at our circumstances, at our situations, or even at the devil, and we have to start taking personal responsibility. This word that he uses for your own desires, lured away and enticed by your own desires, is the Greek word epithumia. And it's not inherently a positive or a negative word. It could be used for a positive desire, right? As we desire after God, that could be epithumia, a good desire that you have. A desire to eat celery, which I totally don't understand. I hate celery. I made fried rice yesterday, and I almost put celery in it, and I was like, I don't have to do that. I'm a grown-up. I can make my own decisions. So I left the celery in the fridge until it goes bad, and we'll throw it away, and we'll buy more next time. (laughs) Or it could be used for a negative desire, and a negative desire is a desire to do something outside of God's will. Here's a couple definitions for us that'll be really helpful framework for this series. When, a, when we have a negative desire, it's called a temptation. A temptation is wanting the wrong thing. It's when there's a desire in you that is for something that God doesn't desire for you. You want something that God doesn't want for you. Not because God's trying to withhold goodness from you, it's because God knows ultimately what's good for you. God ultimately knows the best thing for you. And so the temptation is just that, that desire for something that you shouldn't have, something to do something that you shouldn't do. But it actually turns into sin when you do that thing. So sin is doing, saying, or even thinking the wrong thing. Now we have to delineate a little bit between, okay, what's the difference between wanting the wrong thing and thinking the same thing? For Jesus, in Matthew chapters five through seven, in the Sermon on the Mount, he talks about this, that we can't just compartmentalize sin to I actually committed adultery or actually murdered a person, right? Because in the Sermon on the Mount, what Jesus says, he says, you think as long as you didn't do the act, you're not guilty of the sin. But in fact, if you've already committed that act in your heart. So there's a difference between having that inclination or that temptation and then dwelling on it, sitting on it, fantasizing about it. That's the difference between having that initial temptation and stopping it, closing the door, if you will, on that temptation, and then saying, well, at least I'm not acting on it. I'm just thinking about it every single day. That can just as much as actually doing the act be a sinful thing. And so for us, we we have to acknowledge that our own desires, this actually starts in our hearts, are actually the things that hook us. Anyone know what this is? Yeah, lure. It's got a couple hooks on it. I tried to find the biggest one I could find at the store. I'm not a fisherman, but these two words, the words lured and enticed, in the Greek are hunting or fishing terms. They're terms that you would use if you are a hunter, to catch your prey, to snare it, right? And what's, what's so interesting about this is a fish sees this, and I'm also not a bit, I I don't like celery, I also don't like fish, actually. So this isn't very appealing to me, but imagine that you're a fish, and you see this in the water, and you think, shiny. That's so shiny, look at those fun scales and the colors, and there's even these little tiny tassels, and it's like moving around, and the fish, there's a desire there, isn't there? There's There's an animalistic desire that that fish has I want to take a bite of that, and it sees the shiny thing, but what does it not see? 
the two giant hooks that are in it. The two three-pronged giant hooks that I have to be really careful about this, right? While I'm holding this. And what happens is when the fish takes the bite, all of a sudden it is hooked. It's hooked. The hooks have gotten into the fish. And now, is the fish able to swim wherever it pleases? Does it have freedom to do what it wants? No. The fish goes where the hook pulls it. This is significant for us in our lives because we like to think that we as individuals are separate from our decisions, that you can make a decision to do wrong or to do right, to sin, to do righteousness, and it has no effect on who you are, on your soul, as the Bible would talk. And yet, what happens, John Mark Comer in his recent book, Live No Lies, has this great line. He says, we make our decisions and then our decisions make us. That every time you give into a sin, every time you give into a temptation, what happens is it hooks you. And you are not now in, in, in control and freedom of your life to go and live your life as you please, to live within God's will and to flourish as a human. What happens is those sins are actually dragging you away from God. And they're dragging you towards something. We'll look at the pathway that sin leads us on in just a moment. And yet, there's something enticing about the sin and the temptations in our lives, and that's how it was from the very beginning. In Genesis chapter three, what happened was when Eve looked upon the tree, she saw that it was good for food and a delight to the eyes. And then the serpent said to her, of course, if you eat of this, you will be just like who? Just like God. You can be at God's level, so there's this pride element that, that, that plays itself into the sin and the temptation, and it works. And the, the reason why this is important to talk about is the only reason why temptation actually works is there's something about us that looks at it and we want it. There's something about it, and it might be different for each person, right? The, the, there's a different kind of uh, I don't know this, but I hear for fish, there's different kinds of, you know, baits that work, or lures for work that are different kind of fish. And if there's something about it, the only reason it works is because there's something appealing about it to each of us. I think about Cain and Abel in Genesis chapter four. This is the children of Adam and Eve. And they were both to bring an offering before God. And uh, Abel brought of his first fruits and Cain did not. He was gonna donate the stuff to Goodwill anyways. He's like, ah, just bring it to God, see if God wants it, right? Kind of a secondhand kind of donation or offering to God. And uh, it says that God was pleased with Abel's offering, but he was not pleased with Cain's. And Cain was angry about this. And God, knowing what's going to happen, warns Cain about his lethal anger. This is Genesis chapter four, verse seven. Notice how God talks about sin. He says, and if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Some translations say its desire is for you. Notice how God talks about sin early in the Bible. Is It's almost like a wild beast, isn't it? Sin is crouching at your door that there's this almost uncontrollable nature and we must master it, master the desire that we had. And he's talking, of course, of Cain's desire to hurt or harm his brother. And of course, Cain actually does it. And the first murder, 
human history is committed. So what happens to us when instead of treating sin like the wild animal that it is, instead of treating sin and understanding that it has dangerous, lethal hooks in it, what happens when we look at that, I don't know, mountain lion outside of your front door and we open the door to it and we give it a meal and we let it sit on our laps and watch TV with us? What happens when we treat sin instead of like a wild beast that wants to devour us? What happens when we treat sin like a house pet and we actually nurture it and let it grow? Well, James goes on to talk about this when temptation turns into sin. In James 1, verse 15, then desire when it has conceived gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. I love how Eugene Peterson in the message translation uh, puts it. He says, lust gives birth to sin, and sin grows up to be a real killer. What we see here is we see this progression, a progression, if you're taking notes, from temptation leads to sin, which leads to death. And it's this idea, this is the pathway that when you take that first bite, you give into the temptation, this is what's happening. You're being led towards sin, which eventually will lead it to death. Think about a fish for a moment. When it takes a bite from this lure, is it dead in that moment? No. The fisherman might say it's dead in the water, right, because it's essentially, it will be dead in a few moments, assuming that it stays on the hook, but some fish get away, don't they, right? The line breaks, or I don't know, they figure out how to get it out of their mouth somehow, and they, they escape, but that eventually, that line is leading it into the boat where the fisherman, I know this is a little graphic, then kills the fish somehow. They chop its head off or they hit it with a stick or however fishermen kill the fish, eventually the fish does die. It leads to death. Here's the point. The point for you and me is that sin births death. That's what sin does. It births death. Now, there are a few different ways that, that the Bible talks about death and sin is the cause of all of them. So sin births death. And uh, I wanna talk about the three different ways that the Bible talks about death. The first kind of death is physical death. Physical death is what God told Adam and Eve about. He says in Genesis 2, 17, surely you will die. The reason why we deal with death and disease and the, all the, the evil physical things that we experience in this world is because sin has entered our world. When God created the, the, the created order, he did not include death or disease or decay to be a part of that. He created us for life, but now we deal with the devastating effects of death. And death is, of course, the final enemy, which will be done away with when Jesus returns. The second kind of death is an eternal death. This is what you read about. I know Jake read from the end of Revelation this morning and all things new. The uncomfortable part of the end of the story is that there will be a second death for those who are not in Christ Jesus, for those who live their whole lives in rebellion against God, that that line, once we say yes to sin and rebellion, we become slaves to sin, and the wages of that sin is death, leads to death. And then the third kind of death is a spiritual death. This is what I believe Paul is primarily talking about in Ephesians 2.5, where he talks about that we are children of wrath and we are 
dead in our trespasses and sins. What he's talking about is our inability to save ourselves, our inability to change ourselves, that we might even have this thought, I wanna do the right thing, but we don't really wanna do the right thing, or maybe we don't really wanna do the right thing for the right reasons, or maybe we try and we fail time and time and time again. It's our inability to climb some kind of imaginary ladder to heaven. We can't do it on our own. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. And our problems go much deeper than we initially realized because no one, I mean, think about all the worst possible outcomes that you could, you could, you could be at in life, right? Someone who eventually uh, ends up, maybe they end up in prison or they end up in prostitution or they end up you know, in, in one of these really kind of like, like rock bottom type situations. No one, when they're a little kid, says, I hope I grow up to be there. Do they? No one says, I hope I, I grew up to kill someone. I hope I grew up to be addicted to drugs. I hope I grew up to, to have my family crumble before me. No one, no one when they're a kid, people want, my, my kids wanna be princesses, right? Imaginary, people wanna be happy things. And yet, sin leads us to those places. It may not be that extreme today or tomorrow, but ultimately, sin births death. And I know that this is not maybe the way you wanted to start the new year. Happy New Year, sin leads to death, right? And yet, if we really wanna find freedom, we have to talk about the uncomfortable truth of the problem that we're facing. The problem goes much deeper than we realize. Because for you and for me, there's actually forces at work that are working against us. Does it ever feel like that? Like, man, it should be easier to change. It should be easier to just not be as angry all the time. It should be easier to watch what I say and just have a better filter. But the Bible classically talks about the three main enemies of our souls as the world, the flesh, and the devil. Maybe you've heard about those are kind of the three classic enemies or the three forces working against us. And for the remaining three weeks of this teaching series, we're gonna talk about all three of those and how we can have victory over the world, the flesh, and the devil. And our answer to the question, why can't I change, unfortunately, is you can't change. At least not on your own. It's the bad news, is that if you think you can outsmart the devil, then you're overestimating your own intellect. If you think that you can just, by your own willpower, overcome those deep, almost animalistic desires, then maybe you're overestimating your own willpower. If you think that on your own you can overcome the amount of peer pressure that is the spiritual transformation machine of the world that now is in your iPhone, on social media, every moment of every day, then you've got another thing coming. That's the bad news. If you think that you can change, you can't on your own. But the good news is that God can. And we are not in this alone. Let's continue through our passage in James chapter one, verse 16. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. This is kind of an interesting way of putting it, but what James is really talking about is he's saying, don't blame God. He's not the problem. God is the solution. 
He's not out to get you and tempt you, and, and God takes no pleasure in us slipping up or us being slaves to sin and death. God is the solution. So instead of putting our arms out and keeping that distance from God, we should actually run to God, who's a good father. He's a father of lights, and, and he wants the best for us. And not only does God want the best for us as our heavenly father, he actually knows what's best, right? Many of us as parents, we want what's best for our kids, but sometimes, if we're honest, we don't always even know the best way to handle a situation. God perfectly knows. He perfectly knows. So when God gives us his law, when God gives us instructions, when we have the teachings of Jesus, what that actually is, is it's God's will for our lives. And sometimes we act like it's some kind of mystery. Like, I wish I knew what God wanted for me, and yet he has revealed to us his written word to give us instructions for how we can live our lives. He's a good father. He gives us good gifts. He wants to bless us. He wants to answer your prayer for freedom from addiction. He wants to help you. And in fact, he has already even equipped you in certain ways by the presence of his Holy Spirit. Now, what's so cool is, is, is this description of God as being someone who's the father of lights and there's no shifting, no changing. It, it actually goes back to Genesis chapter one. God being the one who created the sun, the moon, and the stars. I mean, think about that for a moment. Maybe you've been out there on a clear night, maybe not recently because it's been so cold, but maybe you've been camping or, or in your backyard around a campfire, and, and you look up at the stars and you just are just awestruck by the wonder of it all. Have you had an experience like that? What, I, what always blows my mind is just how everything is so perfect, right? Like the, the earth doesn't crash into the moon or you know, planets are, or, you know, everything is, is just set. And what that shows is it's God's wisdom in the created world. The reality is when we follow God's law in our life, we follow God's word, we're actually following that same wisdom, but it's not for maybe these big picture cosmological things, it's for our relationships. It's for our work and our rest. It's for managing what God has entrusted to us with our resources. God is the God of lights. And he's not shifting and he's not changing, so no matter what happens this next year, no matter where culture goes, no matter what's acceptable, you know, and culturally acceptable today or tomorrow or the next day, Ultimately, God's word does not change. He's not the problem. In fact, he is the solution. And then, in James chapter one, verse 18, to finish off our teaching text, this is what he says. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So interesting here is what James is talking about is he's just gotten done talking about how sin births death, right? And the word that he uses for be brought forth is the Greek word apakuo, and it means to bring forth or to give birth to or to produce. And it's the same exact word, in fact, that we looked at in verse 15 that says that sin, apakuo, brings forth or gives birth to death. So the point here is the opposite, actually. If sin births death, God births life. God births life. And that's what God wants for every single one of us. He wants your life to be filled with eternal life. 
He wants you to experience life and life abundantly. And we have this kind of tension of, man, why can't I just become, a, you know, in this new year, why can't I be a new you? New year, new you, why can't I just do that? The reality is if you wanna become a new you, you have to be brought forth, we have to be born again from God. We can't just recreate ourselves. And that's, I would say, one of the greatest lies of these younger generations that we're seeing today is that you can be who? Whoever you wanna be. You can become whoever, and you can alter anything. Nowadays, nothing is off limits. Culturally speaking, you can be whoever you want to be. Whatever your wildest imagination is of what, what you want your identity to be, you can make it true. You can make it a reality. And the reality is, what culture is saying is you can be a new you. Tomorrow you can be a, a different new you. And, and, and the, the, the control of who you become is totally up to the individual. And yet what no one's talking about is the crushing weight of having to create your own identity every single day of your life. The crushing weight and the identity of you have to decide who you are. And your identity is found totally in your own hands. It's not found by the one who created you, who's the only one who's authorized to tell us who we are. So the reality is, if we want to become new, if we want to change, bad news is that we can't change on our own, but the good news is God can change us to such a degree that Paul in 2 Corinthians would call us a totally new creation. Or that as Jesus, in John chapter three, he talks about this idea of being born again. He's having a conversation with a man named Nicodemus, a very religious, very righteous, and older gentleman, and he's talking to Jesus about the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus says this line to him, well, if you wanna become part of the kingdom of heaven, you have to be born again, and it's totally confusing. He's like, born again? He's like, well, I'm like in my 70s. I'm, you know, how, how's that gonna work, right? And for us, in the church world especially, that language is pretty familiar, right? We talk about being born-again Christians, that sort of thing. Imagine if no one has ever used that phrase before. And Jesus is coining this phrase right here in this conversation in John chapter three of Nicodemus. And this is what he says in John 3, 5. Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. I believe what Jesus is referring to when he's talking about waters, he's, he's talking about baptism. He's talking about that is the ritual that Jesus instituted for people putting their faith in him, that, that he gave that to the disciples to baptize people in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And he's saying, that he's saying to Nicodemus, he's like, you've gotta put your faith fully in me. You've gotta put your faith and your trust fully in me. And to be born of the Spirit is talking about that the Holy Spirit actually comes and lives within the life of every believer. I mean, can you imagine how, how much closer God could be than that? I know for some of us, we wanna see God face to face and we wanna wrap our arms around Jesus, but the Holy Spirit of God is actually living within you when you have a faith in Jesus. And what that means is all of a sudden when you are convicted of sin, it's not just you feel bad because you did something wrong. It's actually God saying you need to change in this area of your life. And that's, a, that's actually a blessing. If, if you are about to take a bite of this hook right here 
and the Holy Spirit is like screaming at you internally, don't do it, that's a blessing, isn't it? For God trying to change us and, and to show us that sin births death, it's not because God's trying to suck the fun out of our lives, it's because God has something better for us. And, and another way that I've, tran- uh, that I've uh, uh, defined sin is sin is anything less than God's best. God truly wants what's best for each of us in our lives. And so we have the Holy Spirit within us to convict us. We have the Holy Spirit in us to empower us, to actually take the resurrection power of the gospel and now use that in our lives to follow God and to walk in the good works that we have and I think about, man, how, how much power we have to change without God, it's about as much power as a dead person has at coming back to life. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus died and he did come back to life. And now we have the resurrection power, do you realize that, of the gospel and the Holy Spirit equipping us so that now we can have victory over sin and death. We can say it like this, Christ was born it's Christmas season, we talk about the, the birth of Jesus Christ. Christ was born so we could be born again. So that we could be born again. I think about John three sixteen, which Jesus later on in that same account with Nicodemus said that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son so that anyone who believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And so as bad as the bad news of death is, the good news of the gospel is that God loves you that God loves you, and he doesn't want you to live a life that is just shackled with guilt and shame. He doesn't want you to stay on that hook that is leading you towards death. The good news of the gospel is that God gave a way out when Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins and rose from the grave three days later, and now you don't have to experience death, you can experience life, life to the full, life everlasting by putting your faith in Jesus Christ. And I know maybe there's some of you here today that today is the first day that you will respond to the good news of the gospel. And I would invite you to pray today and ask God to forgive your sin and to lead your life. And like I always do, I would also invite you to make that decision to get baptized, to be born of the water, to be born again. We have plenty of water right here up on stage. And uh, all of our baptisms are actually scheduled for second service. So I was going to, uh, you'll get to celebrate, maybe you can check on social media uh, later this week and we can find, you can see footage of that. But I would invite you to sign up to get baptized. You can, you can talk to me, I'd love to pray with you. We have members of our prayer team who are here. We'd love to pray with you and walk alongside you in that process of putting your faith in Jesus through baptism. You can always go online, hillcityboise.org slash baptism. You can get signed up. And, uh, and, and I wanna just close by reading a few of these statements of the people who've made that decision to get baptized. And the band can go ahead and come up for our last song. But before I do that, I just wanna to, to maybe speak to you if you're asking this question, okay, I've been baptized, I've been a follower of Jesus for a long time, I'm born again, why do I still struggle? And that's why this series We have three more weeks. Come back next week as we talk about the devil and we talk about those three great enemies of our soul. We can find victory increasingly in Christ. All right, I wanna read to you a few of the statements of the people getting baptized so we can celebrate before we sing. The first one is, uh, is Angel, and she says, he, speaking of God, is all I have. 
He saved me from death. Last year around this time, the doctor said I had days to live, but I believed with Jesus by my side, I would live. All the medical procedures and chemo drained me, but he always let me know that he is king, amen? Lucas, who's 12 years old, answered the question, why have you put your faith in Jesus? Simply by saying, because he gives us life. Savannah, age seven, says, because I believe in him. And then Lucy, age six, says, because he's the son of God, and I like him, and he is the only God I have. Isn't that great? And I think about faith, and sometimes parents ask, is my child old enough to get baptized? I was fairly young, I was eight years old when I got baptized. And I always say that for a child to make that decision of faith, to get baptized, that their, their faith in Jesus doesn't have to be complicated, just has to be sincere. And I would just say that to you as well. Maybe you're here and you're, you would say, man, I'm really early in my faith journey. Or maybe I'm trying to find my way back to God, but I've never been baptized. I would invite you to consider that step of baptism. Your faith doesn't have to be complicated, it just has to be sincere. Let's stand for a final time. Thanks for tuning in to the Hill City Church Podcast. You can find out more about our church at hillcityboise.org. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Hill City Boise. We hope this teaching has encouraged you and helps you follow Jesus with everything.